Before we dive into this week's episode, I want to reach out to you with a very special message. This month marks the start of LARB's year-end matching grant drive, where all donations will be matched by an anonymous donor. When you support LARB, not only are you supporting the work that we do here on the LARB Radio Hour, but you're also supporting all of the writers and editors who are publishing criticism, original fiction, essays, and poetry, both on our online website and in our print magazine. Any donation to LARB between now and December 31st will go twice as far thanks to this matching donation. We hope you'll consider donating at lareviewofbooks.org backslash donate. Again, that's lareviewofbooks.org backslash donate. Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we're listening to a conversation that you and I had with the writer Ed Park about his new novel, Same Bed, Different Dreams. Yeah, so this novel is really sweeping in its scope. It's both a story about kind of an insider look at publishing that I think is actually really hysterical and and really brilliant, sharp satire. But then it is also a kind of wrestling with the history of Korea and suppressed histories, things that we may not know that then kind of create the world in which we exist today. Right, but also that, that may not be true. Right. But I think exactly. a lot, exactly. of, the, yes. a lot yeah. of the history here, I assume, is invented, but that's the the kind of instability of the book that you're never quite sure what what is based on reality and what is just Ed Park having a grand old time concocting these hilarious facts. But, you know, sometimes often the the truth is stranger than fiction. So I wouldn't <laughs> right. be surprised if much of this history, which includes the Japanese occupation of Korea to the Korean War all the way to after, if some of it is true or most of it. Yeah. And, you know, the form of this novel is also really like challenging in quite a good way, right? Like many reviewers have described it as Pinchonian. And I think that's in large part because you just kind of, as we've been talking about, some things might be true, some things might not be. And you're moving through various different storylines. So you kind of are just along for the ride for most of it. It's like trying to parse what is fact, what is fiction, and also what the hell is happening with all of these characters. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, there's yeah, there's that secret history, that conspiracy yeah. theory, that feeling of connecting into that grand network that is exciting and feels, you know, like you're getting a special entree into (laughs) some dark, dark worlds. And yeah, it's, it's very well done. And it does, as sweeping as it is, it really does kind of tie together by the end. So I, yeah, I I enjoyed this conversation and Ed is someone I've long admired for his criticism as well. Totally. All right. Well, let's get to it. Great. We're so glad to be joined by the writer Ed Park today. Ed Park is the author of the novel Personal Days, which was a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award, and his fiction, criticism, and essays appear frequently in publications such as The New Yorker, The New York Review of Books, Harper's, and Book Forum. He is also one of the founding editors of the magazine The Believer and a former editor of The Village Voice. He joins us to talk about his new novel, 
Same Bed, Different Dreams. It begins with a former writer named Soon Shen, who's given up fiction for a cozy suburban life in upstate New York, working for a tech conglomerate. At a booze-soaked literary dinner back in Manhattan one night, Soon encounters a famous Korean author named Echo, and later finds himself in possession of Echo's new book, Same Bed, Different Dreams, being a true account of the Korean provisional government. This book presents an alternate history of the peninsula, one in which the KPG, a real organization that formed to protest the Japanese occupation of the country, continued their activity after World War II from far-flung locations, roping in a wide variety of other accomplices from both Eastern and Western cultures. Adding to the speculative history, Park also includes a third narrative of a Korean war vet and sci-fi writer named Parker Jodder that bridges the first two stories and demonstrates the afterlife of fiction, the murkiness of identity, and the underground networks running through art that connect us all. Thank you so much, Ed, for being here. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you guys. So <laughs> I was thinking about how I could even begin a discussion of this novel, <laughs> which is like both a, a challenge, but also a kind of fun place to be. So I think that one of the, the things that I want to ask you about at the beginning here is a question that actually comes up over and over and over again in the novel, which is, what is history? And a lot of that is freighted with like both what is personal history for these characters, what is national history, and what is actually, in a zoomed out way, the stuff of history. There's one moment where I think the character is reviewing that, is it data points? Is it merely dates? Like, and this gets interrogated over and over again. So can you just talk a little bit about what history means for this novel, kind of what its stakes are and what its fault lines are as well? I'm happy to. And, you know, that question is the first line of the book. And it wasn't originally, I have to say, the book kind of began with that second chapter, the long chapter where you meet all the characters. And I won't go through the, the entire construction of the book or how I conceived of it, but, you know, that big party scene was kind of the first scene. And I, and I wrote in that style for quite a while, but there was a realization that a lot of my instincts as a writer are as a comic novelist. So I'm trying to find humor and stuff. I'm trying to keep things entertaining. I want to entertain myself, which is all well and good. But there was a realization as the book got longer that in order to talk about certain things about these characters, some of whom are Korean slash Korean American or Asian American, I really had to get into history. I think there is some understanding of of what Korea is and a bit of knowledge here in, in America about some aspects of Korean history as, as it relates to American history and world history, certainly more than there was when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. But I felt like in order to even give the coordinates of who this one of the main characters, Soon Sheen, is, I almost had to explain like a chunk of modern Korean history. Like how did this character, who is in some ways a stand-in for me, at least in certain respects, born the same time as me, grew up in Buffalo, New York, but like how did that character get there? And so you kind of ask about national history and personal history and the fault lines and the stakes. I kind of think of myself as a normal person in a lot of ways. But when you're living your life, you think of yourself in that way. But then when you're writing 
a novel, especially something with the scope that this one has, you're kind of like, wait a second, why, why was I born there? Why did my parents come to this country? What was going on in Korea? And so I kind of took it, I had to kind of figure out how to convey some of that story on a grander scale, kind of like national history or cultural history, and do it in a way that was not a data dump. I wanted it to be as interesting as it could be. Like, And so one thing I would say is that growing up, I didn't really know I knew something about my parents and sort of their lives in Korea and so forth, but I didn't know the bigger picture. And it really took a while to, because in the culture, there wasn't like right now we have like K-pop and K-dramas and people are watching Squid Game and stuff like that. Never in a million years as a kid would I imagine that people would watch anything from Korea. Like literally you couldn't find anything. My parents could barely get a Korean newspaper in Buffalo, New York. Like that wasn't what where we were, you know. So I wanted to uh, kind of just convey the the most interesting things in a way that would weave into a story. And I guess I would just very quickly like to cite a book that I've mentioned a lot of times in a couple other interviews, but it's called Big Bang by a writer named David Bowman. And it came out in 2019. And it was like a historical novel, the likes of which I hadn't seen before, where there wasn't really a main character. It was just sort of like everything interesting in American post-war history, whether it's cultural, political, what have you. And I found that book so invigorating that it I started almost writing. The style wasn't the same, but I kind of kept these notes where I applied that idea to Korean history. And after a while, I realized, wait a second, this is not a separate project. This is part of my novel, Same Bed, Different Dreams. And so it becomes like the book within the book that another character named Echo, this novelist from Korea, has been working on. And it really was, the book took a long time to write. And that was one of those moments where once I realized this was all the same book, things really clicked. And I, I realized I had a way of writing about this material in a way that that would fit in with the rest of the novel and hopefully be uh, entertaining in, in its own right. Just to follow up on this point quickly, there's like two things that happen in the novel. And I'm sorry, it is, as readers will understand, it is a very dizzying novel. So it's like, I'm still very much processing it. So I don't remember exactly where these pieces come from. But there's one observation that a character makes that I thought was very fascinating, actually quite true, which is that when you move outside of the triviata of like personal history, that then you see the actual patterns that make quote unquote like actual history, right? And that gives you a sense of a why. So that's interesting to think about, especially in terms of like so much, it's often the case that in telling the history of marginal identities, we kind of are always telling personal stories. Those are freighted usually with personal family stories, chosen family stories. But yet also, this novel hinges a lot on an alternate history, right? It is in many ways speculative fiction, which means that we get new what's and also possibly new why's. So I'm very interested in this quite slippery terrain that you're mapping just as like a thinker, but also trying to give us what you've also, I think, quite rightly identified that we don't have, which is a a coherent concept of Korean history, right? I think there's pre-Hallyu, that is really effaced for Americans. We know there's two Koreas, but that's pretty much all that we know. Yeah, I like that term, pre-Hallyu. 
there's a way in which I think how you, if we're talking K-pop and K-drama and things like that, I mean, it's extraordinary. And, and I do like some of it, but I wonder what does that mean? Like, what about everything, <laughs> everything that came before? And um, I had worked at the Village Voice for a while, for a long time, actually, from the mid to late 90s into the early mid aughts. And I was an editor there, but I also wrote a lot of film reviews. And I wanted to be able to review anything. And, but, you know, as time went on, like one thing I did, I don't know if I specialized in it, but I was interested in in Korean film. Like I hadn't seen that much. And so that was like an area that I, I felt like I wanted to go, go deep in. So this was like pre K-drama, really. I mean, some of those longer form soaps, I guess we're starting, I remember some of them starting to come into this country and like, you could get the DVDs in Koreatown or Chinatown. But I think in order to kind of get at a vision of of what Korean history might be, I was looking at some of it through the lens of popular culture, both what I just described, like the movies coming out in the 90s and aughts, some of the stuff that you can stream on Netflix now, but also things like the TV show MASH, for example, which was extremely popular when I was growing up, but was also like, I watched it, A, because everybody else was watching it. I knew it was taking place during the Korean War, but I had no, it didn't, especially as a younger person, like it was hard to like kind of put together what it was exactly, because it was almost like the Korean War was still going on in syndication every afternoon after school. So I wanted to take all these I guess, entry points and also play around with that, play around with them as well in order to convey something about, about Korean history. And I just want to also mention a, a class that I took on modern Korean history, but it wasn't until like after college, like I was in grad school and it really blew my mind. Basically every class, I w- there was something that caught my interest. And I kind of thought this was back in the nineties. And I kind of thought, somebody should put this in a novel. And I would sort of take all these notes. And one of those things was the Korean provisional government, which plays a big role in this book. The KPG really did exist. They were founded in 1919 to protest the Japanese colonization of Korea, which had been going on for nine years at that point. And it was kind of a figurehead government. It was a government in exile. It wasn't really a government. They had no power, but it was to kind of tell people about what was happening in Korea. And it sort of fizzled out after the end of World War II. Japan was defeated, and then Korea kind of had its own brief moment of liberation and then a kind of further tragic twist in its fate, which led to the Korean War and Korea being divided. But I think, and this is a roundabout way to get to your question, I think why this is a novel is this idea, the fiction-making part of my brain is like, what if they never actually stopped existing? What if they're kind of trying to do something to unite the two Koreas? And what if like not just Koreans, not just people like Sigmund Rhee, you know, some folks that are named in the book, but American celebrities and politicians, Jack London, (laughs) Marilyn Monroe, (laughs) like what if all these people were somehow part of the KPG? And it's not historically true, obviously, but in the book within the book, That's kind of the dream, right? I call these parts of the book dreams. And um, it kind of opened up just a lot of possibilities for me as a writer, because it's not just like, I'm telling you what happened in 1919 or in 1945, 1948. I'm taking 
actual events and actual people and imagining encounters and enlisting uh, figures to be in this group. And so even though the dream sections, the prose isn't dreamlike, it is this kind of kind of fantasy version of history. And I feel like I've used the word utopia sometimes in describing it. Just, And I don't quite know what it means, except that maybe these, these figures and these dreamers are kind of <laughs> hoping for some kind of happy end or happy resolution to Korea's fate these last hundred plus years. It also strikes me that the dream of history is something that might exist, particularly in diaspora, that you don't yeah. know mm-hmm. the home country quite as well. You don't really know the history intimately. So it's so much a place of imagination. We see a, a lot of characters here in diaspora. And also, I think there's something about Korea as a colonized land that for me, because I've always focused more on the war and less on everything that came before, I didn't realize quite how central that is in, you know, the imagination of the country, even now, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, So I'm, I'm curious just for you growing up, if that image of Korea being colonized by Japan was a central aspect of how you thought of the country. And, and also just in general, when you were growing up, how you would think back to, I don't know if you're, what generation you are, but this place where your family is from. That's a great question. I'll say one thing. The idea of Japan as a colonizer really did not influence, you know, I didn't really have a conscious idea about that. It's very strange. Like I knew that my father had, he's old enough that at school they would be taught Japanese and stuff like that. But I, I think the idea of Japan is like, a colonial power. Like it didn't really mean anything to me. And in the 70s and 80s, it's sort of like there were tricklings of Japanese pop culture that I could see, like a little bit of cartoons. There were these toys called the Shogun Warriors. So I always, there was, let me put it this way, in Buffalo in the 70s and 80s, there were not a lot of Asians. So any kind of Asian thing, like I was you know, I was on board. (laughs) I think more pertinent, I talked about MASH, but, you know, stories my father told me about when North, the North invaded South Korea and sort of, he stresses that he knows people, he has friends who, who had it far worse, but the amount of kind of chaos and sadness that were a result of the war, I was more aware of that. And particularly through my father, who was a teenager when war broke out. And um, I would also say, like, he grew up sort of right in the middle of Korea. He eventually moved to Incheon and Seoul, but his actual hometown is not, it's not on the map. It's like in the DMZ, like you, it's not there. I think that actually stayed with me. Just the idea of like, we visited Korea once as a family and we just stayed in Seoul, but like you could not go to really where he was from. And my mother was was born in the South, but her family, like, her parents were actually from way up north and had had come down to the south before the war. But just the idea of North Korea as this... Korea itself was had been called the Hermit Kingdom for a long time, but North Korea is really like, it's still that in a way. And I think that was really haunting to me. And as I got older and kind of learned more about it, that just seemed very, very sad. And I suppose, and I think this connects to your other point, I was born in Buffalo. I've been to Korea a couple times, but not a whole lot. 
I can still understand some Korean, but I don't, I wouldn't say I could speak it really anymore. So I grew up hearing kind of a mix of Korean and English from my parents, but, you know, school was, yeah, I had some Korean American friends like myself, but we all just spoke, you know, we spoke English. That was sort of how you, how you got by. So it was really, it's this kind of diasporic, I don't know, fantasy is the word, but it's like, I'm a Buffalonian, right? But (laughs) I, I look Korean and I have a, I have this unbreakable attachment to it, but I've never really, I didn't grow up there. And so you're kind of imagining, even as a, as a younger person, like what would my life have been if, if my parents had stayed there, you know, it's, it's sort of, we talk about speculative fiction, but it's like these alternate realities, you know, you think nobody before my parents' generation in both like lines of going back had ever been out of Korea, had had ever been out of Asia. And as a kid, you're just like, well, here I I am in Buffalo. This is my life. But it, it is kind of haunting to think about that, that you're actually the first one, the first one here. And the past is sort of a closed book to you. Just to follow up on that quickly, I wanted to ask about this moment where Soon is with everyone at this dinner or drinks or whatever. It's the one of the first big, long scenes unfolding. We're kind of getting to know all these characters whose legacies will be unpacked through the entire novel. And there's one point where he says something about like, because they're all literary and they're talking about different groups and publications, and he's talking about being Asian American. And then he says, I was still getting used to that term. I was curious what that what his psychology was at that moment, like what that meant to him. Why was that a hard term for him to acclimate to or what part of his identity was that not capturing or a little aside really interested me. I wonder if you could speak to that. It's a good question. I remember a time in my life where I didn't, like the term Asian American just didn't, I think it existed, but I didn't know about it. So I would really think that probably in college is where I, I first heard of it. And obviously soon in this book is is older than that when he's, I guess he's in his 40s when this is happening. I think the idea of being like, he's not quite, it doesn't feel natural to him in a way, or he's he doesn't know that he wants to be categorized as such. And I would say like, this is a place where perhaps he diverges from me. I think that I'm very comfortable with that term. I use it all the time and Korean American as well. But without getting too much into spoilers, like I think his life has been from teenagedom to adulthood, you know, it kind of takes on some dramatic twists and turns that perhaps leave him a little bit, I don't know, but skeptical, but he doesn't quite feel like he matches up with that categorization, perhaps. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Ed Park about his novel, Same Bed, Different Dreams. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. I'm so glad to have Robert Gluck on the line. He is the author of many books. His latest is called About Ed, and he has a book recommendation. I would like to recommend a book called Honey Mine. It's by Camille Roy. It's a collection of her prose, and it's a very deeply tasty, delicious, 
very intelligent portrait of the outlaw life that lesbians led in the 80s and 90s in San Francisco. Very conscious, class conscious, funny, and uh, rich. Wow, that sounds tantalizing. Did you know or do you know Camille? Was she a student or a friend? Well, yes, I've known her in many different capacities. She attended the small press traffic workshops where a new narrative was developing. And so she's an early new narrative writer. And uh, we have a lifelong friendship. And she is also the mother of my son, Reese, one of the mothers. Amazing. Wow. So very intimately. That's a lot of relationship. <laughs> yeah. so the most, uh, the mother of your son would probably be the most important there. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's amazing. And when was this book released? Oh, I never know the answer to these questions. A while ago, recently? or No, no, it's recent. It's from Nightfall Books. It's in the last two years. Oh, great. Wow. Well, it sounds excellent. Can you give us the title and author one more time? Yes, it's called Honey Mine, and the author is Camille Roy. Thanks so much, Bob. You're welcome. That was Robert Gluck. His latest book is called About Eggs. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Ed Park, author of Same Bed, Different Dreams. I wonder if some of that is because, and these are those moments, that kind of thread that goes throughout the novel, because we're, we're mapping three different stories that interlace, yeah, which yeah. I want to talk about in a minute. We <laughs> but, should talk um, about that, yeah. <laughs> just as like a feed of like how you post-it noted it. But what I love about that scene and all of those scenes is kind of as soon as is considering the novel and kind of we see him, is that it's all very satirical. So I th- my read of that moment is that there's like a little bit of his resistance is about the fact that he is deeply cynical, both as like somebody who has access to this literary world, but also works at this mega corporation, which is Gloat, which is kind of like Google, or it could be Meta, it could be a variety of quote unquote big tech companies that do everything. But when he's at that party at the beginning, which is a publishing party for readers, and this doesn't give anything away, it's such a beautifully insider, very cynical take on the publishing industry. Because I think as that term emerges at that moment early in the novel, it's also a a marketing thing. Like, they're all kind of selling each other, for lack of a better word, like, bullshit story. Like, I love the, what is her name? Is it Loa Ling? Loa Ding, yeah. Loa Ding. <laughs> and they what's the award that they win? Which was so, the, the Peter the, Dong the Peter Award. Dong. <laughs> which I just like could not stop. Yeah. Like that, that is what grabbed yeah. me from the very beginning of this novel. Yeah. I was just like, he is so funny. But I think that's part of it, that there's a real discomfort, and that's what the satire draws out with kind of both the manipulation of history, identity, it's interfacing with the market. In this case, the publishing market, but there's also this broader tech market. So this is an awkward dogleg transition to get you to talk a little bit about satire as kind of a mode of yours. You know, obviously that was there in personal days, lampooning kind of corporate culture, which is here too, but it also gets this really great 
it has a number of really cutting portraits of the publishing industry. They're like, can you just talk a little bit about like that? Not, not, I'm not asking you to talk about the publishing industry in that way. You begin a book with what is history and it feels laden down with capital H history. And, you know, I don't want to discount that because it, it took a lot of work to, <laughs> to bring that in, in a way that I felt satisfied with. But you're right. I love comic novels. Personal Days, my first novel was a, sort of an office comedy, office dark comedy. And in some ways, this book is also, you know, a workplace satire. So Soon Sheen, one of the narrators, works for Gloat, this mega corporation that has aspects of those fang companies, right? Those tech companies. And he, he had written a book of stories and then just kind of faded out of the literary life. And I wonder if, you know, I've worked as a, in some capacity in the literary world, the publishing world, periodical world, basically, and, you know, some teaching as well, like my whole career. So I have an acquaintance with it and a fondness for it, but I, I also, you know, the absurdities of, of those fields are also kind of fun to think about as a fiction writer. And uh, I wanted to, you know, just go for it and put those in. I've, obviously exaggerating a lot of cases. I think you're right about just the point we're talking about of this resistance to, I'm sorry, I didn't think of this before, but the resistance perhaps to the term Asian American, a resistance to like being commodified. And I think at some level, perhaps I, maybe I feel that too. I should point out, I'm so happy to see so many Asian-American writers and Korean-American writers. Actually, this year, Alex Chi did a list of like how many Korean-American novels and works of fiction have come out this year, and it's extraordinary. There was nothing like that when I was growing up. Like, you could count them on one hand, and I didn't even know they were, I really didn't even know they were out there. But I think that part of what I wanted to do with, with that first scene, it was like, I mean, if you can think of me writing the scene, maybe unconsciously it was like, hey, I want to, I want to join the party again. Personal Days came out, you know, <laughs> seven years ago. I want to, I want back in. And this is what, I, <laughs> this is what I'm facing. So I, you know, I was clearly, you know, I was having a lot of fun with it. It was like a dinner party in my mind where I was just like trying to make it the most entertaining thing I could. But, you know, I think there's a grain of anxiety, perhaps, uh, resistance, and just like in general questioning, where are we now in terms of the world of, of Asian American letters? But I th that's a really great point. And I think uh, even any kind of satire, there's got to, as silly or as funny as it is, it's kind of not worthwhile unless the, <laughs> the author or the artist has, you know, something at stake. In terms of just a, a curveball away from maybe what is expected of an Asian American writer or the kind of stories they should be telling. I feel like this novel really exemplifies taking a lot of risks and just a lot of things that are just seem like completely from the beyond, um, not formally, just you would not imagine that this book would exist. It's like mm -hmm. totally out of the box. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're referencing those three novels within one novel, which is what People say that Echo is writing. That's the same bed, different dreams. But this is also what your book is. So I wanted to talk about how you happened on that structure a little bit more. Like, And also, uh, I wanted to talk about the, the novel that we haven't spoken of yet, which is 2333. Sure. Okay. Well, so basically, I had that 
Beginning with that party scene, Soon Sheen is the, the narrator. We've talked about him, roughly my some of my biographical background. And that was the, the main kind of narrative voice, like this observer, works in tech, but was a writer. You know, so that was like my way in. And then I mentioned sort of this, the moment where I realized I needed to get into the history of not just this character, but Korean history and how, how Korean history and American history are welded together. And so those are the dreams of the Korean provisional government. So that is, in the novel, it's the book that Echo has been writing. It's his great unfinished masterpiece, which is abbreviated as GUM. So that term comes up a couple times. So it was sort of like, I took this very long Soon Sheen part and sort of blew it up. At a certain point, I was like, this is too long. Like, I need to just, to myself, I put on my editor's cap and said, just take the six chapters you think are the best and throw everything out. So I did that. I started putting the dream sections, the historical sections in between. And then, as if to make things even more tricky for myself, I realized there needs to be kind of a third narrative strand going on. And this one doesn't have a single voice. It jumps around in time just decade by decade. So it begins in the 60s. And each time you encounter this thread, which I call 2333, the action kind of takes place a decade later. And um, the narrators shift. Some are done in the form of kind of letters. There's one part in the second person. And in some ways, like, I'm trying to mimic a little bit the style of that decade the, that falls apart a little bit. But I think I needed that because the other two parts, I needed to find a way to bring it all together. And if if I could go back to sort of the idea of Korea as a some sort of inheritance for me, but also Buffalo, the 2333 section, this third section, which was the most recent one that I wrote, that is... A lot of that is Buffalo stuff. I mean, there's also New York City stuff in there too, but maybe we could call it the most American in some ways. Anyway, so there was there we were with there I was with these kind of three th threads kind of circling around each other. And then the tricky part was to to figure out how it was all gonna come together. And um, you know, I mentioned 2333 as the name of this third strand, and that's a I don't want to give away too much, but in my book, it is a science fiction series written by a character named Parker Jodder, who is a Black Korean War veteran from Buffalo, who he sees what he thinks is a UFO during the war. He gets captured by the North, and then he writes science fiction novels when he gets back home. He's kind of like actually a Philip K. Dick-like character, if that character also wrote science fiction. And so... He was sort of, I mean, I felt close to him. I felt close to Soon Sheen. And I felt close to a character named Daisy O, who's like the translator. But 2333 is the name of his science, of Parker's science fiction series. But it's also kind of a tip of the hat to uh, Roberto Bolaño's 2666. It has some other significance that I won't get into. So I didn't want to make the book too, like, meta. But there are like a couple nods to... People like Bolaño, there was a real hotel in colonial, you know, in 1900s Korea called the Hotel Sontag, which is obviously a, a reference to Susan Sontag. There was a Japanese officer named Murakami. Like, these are real things. I'm not, I'm not making it up. And I think it's, in a way, nobody has to know about these things, but maybe they also announce sort of where some of my influences lie. And uh, to talk about this book as 
to the extent that it is original, I think my models are maybe atypical. I kind of cut my teeth on like the big postmodern <laughs> books of of the 90s. But like, you know, I, I inhaled all... When I discovered Don DeLillo, it was... It changed my life. And, um, you know, I discovered him in that period between Mao Tzu and Underworld. I was an intern briefly at Harper's when they first did their folio in 1992, this special section. It was Pathco at the Wall. So Underworld would not come out for several more years, but that was the thing. And I was completely... I was like, this is the way I want to write. Like, I really... I read all of DeLillo after that. And when, you know, and when Underworld came out, obviously it was a huge event for me. But also people like Thomas Pynchon, Infinite Jest. William Gaddis actually published, I believe in the 90s, A Frolic of His Own. And I read all of Gaddis. And this is all skewing very white male. But I also want to mention, I studied with a writer named Maureen Howard at Columbia. And she was really my mentor and my great friend. She passed away last year. At, uh, she was in her 90s. But she's kind of seen as a, you know, oh, she writes about sort of domestic Irish-American stuff. But she was a radical writer. And almost more than those books, she was like, I think the knock against MFA programs is like, oh, they everything is the same. They try to simplify it. She was like, go bigger, <laughs> get more complicated. She's someone who wrote a novel called Natural History that includes like a ledger in the middle of it with just like a kaleidoscope of images of anything you can imagine inserted in there. Her last four books were a quartet of novels that range all over the place in terms of time and space and focus. And so I don't mention her enough, but she is, she kind of gave me the confidence or like the seal of approval to just like, don't limit yourself in terms of what you're writing. She was also the teacher of a friend of mine who I, whose writing I, I revere, Julia Tsuka, who's in ways like almost the opposite of me in terms of like, she writes these very concentrated, slim, perfect books Anyway, it's a testament to Maureen that she kind of could figure out what the strengths of her students were. Anyway, I want to acknowledge her and just like how good and complex her work is. Along these lines, there's a moment in, I forget which section it is, about midway through the book, where you have the, so there's Parker Jodder, and his daughter, I believe, is getting a letter from his editor, whose name is, is Dorothy Zephyr. She goes by Dot. And there's a great moment in which Dorothy, so both of them are black, but neither one of them knows it. And there's a moment in which, like, Dorothy in this letter is saying that she kind of wonders what might have happened. She has a great line about, like, we were both white by default because they had never met each other in person or spoken on the phone. And she kind of wonders if his novels, their relationship, and her experience would have been different if she had known that, right? So if this kind of like default white thing had been had been discovered. So I'm going to ask this somewhat wobbly question about how like race, whiteness, and postmodern fiction as a frame kind of functions in this novel. 
because, you know, there's a very interesting way in which we could say that, well, postmodernism is in the, like, most vulgar grad student seminar reading is, like, the destruction of, like, the big signifiers, right? So things like history, the teleology of history, coherence itself, right, is something that falls apart. This is in a novel in which you are, the characters are trying to make coherence out of history specifically soon that they don't understand or they don't have access to, but you're doing it in this frame that is constantly asking us to rethink what we can assume, what is actually true, it's speculative. And then race, and in Soon's experience, his adopted daughter, who, like, they have to tell her that she's adopted. You know, there's so much that's going on there. So if you can just talk a little bit about how something small like race and postmodern identity functions in your in your novel. <laughs> <laughs> a small topic. Um, I don't know that I've articulated this yet. And I don't know that I have a, you know, speaking of coherence, like a, a coherent answer, but I, I did feel obviously it was, it was important to the book. And this is no slam on DeLillo or Pynchon or any of those folks. Those are books that I love and that I kind of model myself on, but it's like, why aren't there more books like that written by people of color? I mean, there are some, there's a novel called I Hotel, there's Samuel Delaney, the great science fiction writer, Dahlgren, but I thought it would be interesting to kind of, when I realized the scope of this book would be big, not just in terms of page length, but the structure and, and sort of some of the um, approaches and, and devices, if you will, that I was using, and that some of it hinged on, like you brought up the the letter from the editor and not realizing she and and her author were the same race. And this probably... I don't know if that could happen now, but, you know, just these missed connections. And there are others throughout the book, right? As you read on, you realize that, you know, certain characters are related to each other. You get backstories of and sort of these interconnections. And I think it was just, maybe I was just trying to invite myself in again into this tradition. You know, I, I would say also, so Personal Days is a very different novel in many ways, short, I think it's like 140 pages, maybe 160 pages. But even for that short duration, there are three different sections, each done in a, a style or a mode or a voice that overthrows the previous one. And so I think part of it's just how I write. Like I want, I love funny writing. I love, I love all kinds of books, but as a writer, I think it must be something where I, I think structurally, like I want things to have complexity in terms of the voice. I want to expand the range of what I can do. But personal days, despite kind of these postmodern, you know, touches, if you will, there was no race in it. There's a little bit, there are a couple jokes where the ethnicity of the, you know, some of the characters comes to the fore, but it's really, I was like, office comedy. They didn't even have last names for the most part. And I think at some level, maybe I was my own ego or my own like identity as a writer, I wanted to write a book that you don't expect from a writer of color, for lack of a better term. So, but it's a comedy, it's done in these three parts. But I think part of me was like, my next book, maybe that's where we get into stuff like race and the sort of complexities of, of history and so forth that I, that I put in this book. And I think that I'm still very proud of Personal Days, but what I like about this one is that all of the things that were excluded in 
personal days have now like they're really like that's what the book is about. Like it's <laughs> it is hopefully you know I am writing it in a way that I think is suitably complex, but it's suitably complex because the subject is complex, and I wanted to use everything in my power to make the book work on that on that level. There's a line in the book that I really love that is um, Soon's daughter. They ask her what a dream is, and she says it's everything that's not online. I thought that's it's such a beautiful way to state it, and it shows to me kind of what this, the potential still of the imagination and um, the way it kind of faces off here with gloat, which is this conglomerate that's just subsuming every aspect of life. And especially in a book that's about creative legacies that kind of weave throughout the, all three novels and intersect. And um, it even makes me think of the slanted and enchanted, the zine that this girl is, has made. And then it's like gloat is somehow taking it over or like all these. And the, you know, the New York whip here, which I feel like is a reference to the village voice, kind of like media that, and even soon um, stories, you know, that, Somehow Daisy knows about all these stories he's written, but they're not cataloged. Like he doesn't know how she would have found them because they aren't online from what he knows. Although like what's not online at this point? But um, yeah, just as someone who's been around media for so long and literature and this way in which we assume that everything that exists now we can find, you know, that there's nothing unreachable, unknowable, and the way this book seems to kind of upend that assumption. I don't know exactly what the question is here, but I I did notice that, and I, I think it's the kind of power of the imagination and what still could exist in that space seems to be a big theme of the novel, and I wonder how you feel about that. I mean, that line, um, I think her parents joke that they should, like, crochet it, you know, like, they, they, could, they could make it into merch, Dreams are everything that's not online. I actually worked hard on that line. Like, I wanted her to say, the daughter, who's very young, story, like, to say something that, like, a kid could conceivably say. And what would it mean? I should also say, I started this book when when I had kids. And so my kids have grown up with tech and, and being online in a way that I didn't. I'm kind of like, maybe it's nostalgia for a way of life or a way of childhood that that is not so plugged into everything and where everything isn't instantly accessible. I'm just reminded like earlier this year, before the book came out, but after it was done, I was talking to a friend and I said something like, I think ChatGPT, like all, you know, it had come out and everybody was talking about it. I said, well, the one thing about this book is like, I don't think AI could have written it. I was joking then, but you know, as like every passing month, it seems like the conversation around AI gets more startling. I'm not a Luddite and I don't want to give that impression, but, you know, I think there is one thing that novels, books can do, works of fiction, especially, and I suppose poetry, like they're commodities, right? They're being sold, they're being published, but you can't just push a button and have them appear. Like serious literature is always going to be its own thing. And, you know, it took me nine years to write this, and there are definitely points at which I was like, this, this is taking a long time. And why didn't I just write? You know, my initial conception was sort of like, this will be a funny, you know, literary satire. It'll be, it'll be funny. It'll go by quick. But here we are. And I can't say I regret having spent that long. Like, I think I did pour 
you know, something like my whole life into it, it feels. Not just those nine years, but, you know, a lot of the stuff is things I was thinking about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, or even even as a kid, to be honest. And there's a character who who mirrors my father in some ways, and some of his stories are are in there, you know, distorted and adapted, but they're there. Well, maybe we should end there on the singularity of literature, and uh, let's hope no one has fed uh, same bed different dreams to <laughs> AI quite yet, although... They probably have. It's probably they happening probably as, as we speak. But. Yeah, but write me an Ed Park novel. Right. <laughs> but anyways, congratulations on the book, Ed. Thank, Thank you. you so much Thank for speaking you. with us. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for these questions. They're really like, you know, the book is done, but it's exciting to think about it. And you asked some really great questions. Thanks. We've been speaking with Ed Park, author of Same Bed, Different Dreams. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten.